Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and very excited that we have as our honored guest today, Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo. Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo is a bhikshuni in the Drukpa lineage of the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. She's an author, teacher, and founder of the Dongyu Gatsal Ling Nunnery in Hamachal Pradesh, India. She's best known for being one of the very few Western yoginis trained in the East, having spent 12 years living in a remote cave in the Himalayas, three of those years in strict meditation retreat. In February 2008, Tenzin Palmo was given the rare title of Jetsunma, which means Venerable Master, by His Holiness the 12th Gyalwang Drukpa, head of the Drukpa Kagyu lineage, in recognition of her spiritual achievements as a nun and her efforts in promoting the status of female practitioners in Tibetan Buddhism. Tenzin Palmo spends most of the year at, at DGN, DGL Nunnery and occasionally tours to give teachings and raise funds for the ongoing needs of the nuns and the nunnery. In addition to her role as founding director of DGL Nunnery, Jetsunma is president of Sakyadetta International Association of Buddhist Women, founding director of the Alliance of Non-Himalayan Nuns, honorary advisor to the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, and founding member of the Committee for Bhikshuni Ordination. Her books include Reflections on a Mountain Lake, Teachings on Practical Buddhism, and Into the Heart of Life. Today, Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo is with Banyan Books in conversation about her new book, which is titled The Heroic Heart, Awakening Unbound Compassion. It's based on the classic 14th century mind training text of Tibetan Buddhism called The 37 Practices of a Bodhisattva. And this guidebook shares pithy advice on how to act as bodhisattvas in our everyday lives, enabling us to possess compassion in an authentic way. Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo shares her reflections on this famous teaching and how to live a life of mindfulness and selflessness. If you'd like to learn more about Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo's life and work, please visit her website, which is tenzinpalmo.com. So Banyan community, please join me in a very warm welcome 
for Jetsunma, Tenzin, Palmo. Thank you so much for joining us. So maybe we can, we can just begin our conversation um, by talking about uh, the author of the 37 verses on the practice of a bodhisattva who is, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Thogme Sangpo, uh, who wrote this text in the 14th century. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Kadampa lineage going back to Atisha Dipankara in the 11th century? Well, exactly that. Uh, in the 11th century, this uh, great Bengali scholar called uh, Atisha Devankara, he was invited to Tibet by the king of Western Tibet, who was concerned that um, somehow the Buddhism which had been introduced into Tibet in the 8th century had gone a bit, um, gone a bit astray. And he felt he needed, they needed a bit more guidance from the Indians. So they invited the teacher to Tibet. And he recognized that <coughs> they needed to get back to the fundamentals, especially the motivation, which is to practice not only for one's own benefit, but in order to be of great benefit to all other living beings. And uh, he emphasized very much also the, the qualities of bringing difficulties and difficult people, difficult situations, obstacles that we come across in our everyday lives, how to make use of all these uh, difficult situations to enhance the past. Rather than seeing them as obstacles, we see them as opportunities. So uh, he began this uh, teaching on how to bring all situations onto the path, onto the spiritual path. And uh, from him uh, radiated many uh, disciples and they, they formed a tradition called the Kadampa. And so uh, Tommy Zangpo was one of those who came, you know, a few centuries later, but with the same emphasis. I mean, this, this uh, 37 practices of Bodhisattva is concerned with how to take everything, your difficulties as well as good times, everything, and make use of it on the path. This is why it's so useful for everyday life now, because most people, you know, are not spending their lives in monasteries, and but they, they are sincere people. They want to practice, right? I mean, in the West and in Asia, nowadays people are highly educated, but they have professions, they have families, they have social life, and they also want to bring a spiritual dimension into their lives. So they're not going to spend their time always in formal meditation in retreat, and, but they want to make use of their daily life, right? To prevent their lives from such being meaningless, you know, secular occupations. They want to integrate the spiritual into their daily lives, make meaning out of their daily lives. So these teachings are extremely practical. And even though they were delivered now in the 14th century, they are as applicable today as, you know, centuries before. This is why now more and more people are beginning to recognize 
how extraordinarily useful the, these teachings are. And because they're in verses, you can take just one verse and really sit and think about it, right? How I can apply this to my life. So this is why um, in the last years, now I've retired, but in the last years, I was mostly giving teachings on what is called lojong or mind training because it's so useful, so very, very useful for people's lives. Transforms their people's lives, actually. Thank you. The first chapter, and just to give people an idea, this is, this is a wonderful book and there's 37 chapters, of course, for the 37 verses. And uh, Jitsunma gives a commentary on each verse. Now, the first chapter uh, is titled Making Life Meaningful. You just mentioned people are looking for meaning in their lives. Um, is it okay if I share that verse? Okay. So the, the verse says, Now that I have this great ship, a precious human life, so hard to obtain, I must carry myself and others across the ocean of samsara. To that end, to listen, reflect, and meditate day and night, without distraction, is the practice of a bodhisattva. You make it very clear in that chapter that there's no time off in the practice of a bodhisattva. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering if you can give us some pointers on how to cultivate that kind of stamina and alertness in body and mind. You know, I mean, it's, it's not a matter of being, you know, tense and I, I can't lose a second, you know, I've got to be on the path and, and getting extraordinarily uptight about it. It's not like that. In fact, it's a matter of learning how to relax into the moment, into the present. And, and so I think the two main, main qualities which we need to take with us are first to cultivate what nowadays is called mindfulness, um, but it means this kind of sense of, of awareness, of presence, of not being totally distracted by all our thinking, but being able to be at the center, right? To become more centered and more present and aware and have a very relaxed, spacious mind instead of a very busy, tight mind. And at the same time, to have a kind heart, remembering that just as I would really rather be okay, I'd really rather feel happy than to feel miserable. I don't want to be depressed. Every being that we meet wants to feel okay and doesn't want to be depressed. I mean, some people might have very funny ideas of where happiness lies, but genuinely, people want to feel okay inside and, and not feel not okay inside. And so, likewise, every, everyone that we meet, we wish them well. You know, we try to cultivate some kindness in our life, remembering that we'd rather people were kind to us than unkind. So, likewise, we should be kind to them and not unkind. So, this sense of presence, of being not caught up in the past, not endlessly anticipating and being anxious about the future, being present in the moment and with an open kind heart. That's what we have to do. In all situations with our family, with our work colleagues, with people we meet, with not just people, but animals, insects, 
all beings want to be happy. So we remember that, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, running a race to some goal, but just learning how to be here and now present with a good heart. That, that takes up the day, right? Chapter 10 is titled Valuing Others. And one of the themes that comes up, um, it, it seems, I, I'm not a, a student of Buddhism, but I, I noticed this theme coming up a lot, and that is the need for both wisdom and compassion on the path. Um, I'm wondering if you can uh, illuminate for us why these two qualities are considered the essence of being a bodhisattva. Yes, wisdom and compassion are regarded as two wings of the bird to fly towards enlightenment. If we only have lots and lots of compassion, but no wisdom, then eventually we're likely to burn out or to be very, very kind, very, very compassionate, but not seeing the whole situation clearly and therefore messing it up, even though we had good intentions, right? Lots of people have good intentions, but end up really creating more problems. Why? Because they lack wisdom. They lack the clear insight to see things how they really are. And in that way, make informed decisions about how to help. If we only have wisdom and we don't have compassion, then it becomes quite cold, becomes quite analytical. We see the situation very clearly, but we have no empathy. And in that way, likewise, we fail in our potential as human beings. It is regarded that the enlightened state is the fullness of our wisdom and compassion. The two of them are two sides of the same coin. So if we have wisdom, we can activate our compassion. If we have compassion, we see clearly and therefore bring into being our wisdom. So the two are the two sides of the same coin. And they're very important. As I say, they're like the wings. One wing, we'll just circle round and round and round. But with two wings, then we can fly upwards. So that's why in Buddhism, uh, the, the, these two qualities of, of of clear insight into the nature of reality, along with the great empathy of understanding the, the underlying suffering of all of us because we do not see clearly and therefore we do suffer. We, 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 we just don't know what we're doing and therefore we create problems for ourselves, we create problems for others and look what we're doing to the world. It's all based on our ignorance and lack of empathy. So this is why we are destroying ourselves, destroying others, destroying the whole planet. So we need to develop these two qualities equally. Thank you. Now, the way, the way it's my observation, and please correct me if I'm wrong, chapters 11 to 18, all of these verses deal with the practice of kindness and compassion as well as Tonglen and, and the idea of using all of the adversities that we face in life 
to benefit our practice and others. I'm wondering if you could uh, help us understand the essence of how challenges and adversity can actually become something that is of benefit and that we can actually become grateful for those things in our practice. Well, you know, sometimes I, I say it's like, um, like a, a spiritual gymnasium. If we go to a gym, then, you know, the trainer will look at us and say, well, you know, maybe your arms are okay, but your legs are really flabby and put us on the machine, which will challenge our legs, right? I mean, we don't just, if it's too easy, then we're, we're throwing it up a bit. So that, you know, you know, you go to the gymnasium and they have these big, I can't understand it, these big glass, you know, that everybody can look in and see the people training inside and they'll, right? You know, I mean, they're paying for this. Um, and at the end, they come off and, and they feel great. And, and their legs, you know, get toned up, they get muscled, they, they feel wonderful, they feel so much better. And they're grateful to the machines for testing them and, and challenging them, right? So in a way, we can consider life to be our spiritual gymnasium, right? It's challenging us. If it's too easy, we can float along, but we get very inwardly flabby, right? Thinking we're ever so much nicer than we are actually are because nothing has ever challenged that. And so therefore in that way, we can look at the difficulties and problems which we do face in life to recognize that this is strengthening our character. This is bringing out qualities in us, which otherwise would never be, um, recognized which would never otherwise be uh, needed so in that way we begin to recognize that even the difficulties of life sickness loss people doing bad things it's not that we we go out to find them but when they come we can make use of them instead of being angry depressed resentful we can say this is my challenge now. How can I respond to this situation in a way which will transform it from an obstacle into a, a spiritual opportunity? For example, if we, one of the qualities needed on the path spiritually is patience, tolerance, forbearance. Well, we, we need things which, and people, who, you know, push our buttons uh, in order to develop these qualities, right? I mean, if ever it's, I always say it's very easy to be loving to people who are lovable. That doesn't require any particular uh, qualities of our, our nature. You know, naturally we're nice to people who are nice. But the thing is, how do we respond to people who are not nice? People who really, you know, causes a lot of trouble and a lot of problems. Well, either we can be very angry and upset and want revenge or whatever, or we can say, well, these people are here to teach me patience and forbearance. So far from resenting them, we can be grateful 
and see them. I mean, in the text, it says, you know, we see them as our spiritual teachers. We even maybe put them on the top of our head out of respect. Because why? They are teaching us this very, very important quality of forbearance, tolerance, and patience. So in this way, there are many, many different techniques for taking difficult things which we would normally regard as being hopelessly painful and using them instead as a great spiritual um, impetus to develop ourselves and to cultivate the qualities of the heart which need to have opposition in order to flourish. So this is what the text is all about. It's about taking all the things which normally would cause us to be very upset and depressed and angry and just turning the whole picture around and, and feeling grateful for this opportunity to spiritually develop. That's what it's all about. Which is helpful for everybody because everybody ends up having, you know, problems and difficulties and challenges in life and instead of resenting that we should say okay good this is my time to you know put on my arm as a good little spiritual warrior and go forth chapter 19 recognizing what is truly valuable looks at the other side of the coin which is you you say that uh you know a lot of people will struggle or fall apart spiritually when things are not going well and other people might struggle more when things are going well the other side of the coin can you speak a little bit to that side of things well the point is that if things are too easy and there is no sense of um need to make effort right and and if every if we are always as I am, surrounded by people who are so lovely and nice, then I can definitely fool myself to thinking I'm lovely and nice too, because uh, it's very easy. You know, you're a mirror to the people, and if people are friendly, then we are friendly. And then we think, oh, I'm a friendly person. And so that's, that's the danger there, that we can become complacent and uh, regard ourselves as much more spiritually advanced than we actually are. And, and so that's the danger with um, things being too comfortable and uh, too pleasant, that we can be beguiled into thinking we've already accomplished, whereas actually it's simply that we have never received any opposition. So then when we do meet with things which go wrong, we are like people who are always lying around on the couch and thinking they're healthy, but then when they suddenly have to go trekking, they discover that they 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 completely fall apart. And this is the danger there. The danger there is in imagine there's nothing to be done because there's been no nothing to arouse our, our negative thinking. Right? I mean, so then we think we don't have negative thinking. And it's only then when we uh, do meet with difficulties that we discover what needs to be done. So this is the problem with, with everything being too comfortable, is that we, we delude ourselves into thinking that we, we don't need any more work that we've already accomplished. And that's not true. 
So that can be a danger on the spiritual path. If you're, I mean, like, you know, these big gurus and they have everybody around them bowing down and, you know, praising them and so forth. And then they think they're really something special. Um, whereas maybe it's just simply because the, you know, they haven't had uh, to deal with uh, opposition and difficulties. And when people do oppose them, then they might get very upset and very angry. And that's a good thing because then they reckon they can, if they've got any humility, they can realize there's still a lot of work to do. That leads me into a question I wanted to ask. Uh, chapter 23, not profiting from dharma. I found it really insightful and it touches on what you just mentioned. You talked about a lot of the young reincarnate lamas being sent out to teach too early because their centers need to raise money and they haven't completed their training um, and so it's easy to fall into the pitfall of of taking on everybody's praise and i was i was really curious to know what your experience was after the publication of cave in the snow for those who don't know that was the biography by vicky mckenzie about jitsunma and her 12 years um, in retreat in a cave in in the himalayas uh, you you started uh, also going out and raising funds for your nunnery, uh, and you you went from a life of a lot of solitude to all, being very much in the public eye. Um, how did how was that for your sadhana? How did that impact your practice? Well, again, I mean, I I have been very fortunate because well, fortunate or unfortunate, depending how you look at it. Um, because, uh, again, as I traveled around the world all over, one only met me really very kind people. And it was very interesting to see how, you know, East or West, people are facing the same challenges in their life. And they, they have the same wish to find a a path which is, is relevant for the kind of lives which they are leading. And I, I, I think it's very important to realize that we're, you know, wherever we are from, we are all human beings and we all have the same spiritual potential, but also we also face many of the same problems as humans. And so going around meeting all these people, I, I really appreciated how profound the Dharma is and how really beneficial it is if we take just, you know, it can be as complicated as we want it to be, and it can be as simple as we want it to be, right? The Dharma can be very, very complex. And at the same time, the essential message is very, very simple, which is dealing with how to tame and train and understand the nature of our consciousness, of our mind. And so, you know, as I say, wherever I went, basically the same kind of questions came again and again and again. People wanting to know how to take this practice and integrate it with their life. And I, I found that very inspiring, right? You know, because nowadays it's not just something exclusively for monks. It's now something which has spread out in, in all directions. And it has nothing to do with gender. It has nothing to do with nationality or social status. It is how to become 
genuinely human, how to cultivate a good heart. And yeah, it was good going out and meeting people from all around the world and seeing how much we are so alike once you, you know, get down just a tiny, tiny little bit. Really, there we all are, struggling human beings who are trying to realize our Buddha potential. Thank you. Maybe if we can switch gears a bit, I just want to remind people to send in their questions and that we're speaking about Jitsunma's latest book, which is The Heroic Heart, Awakening Unbound Compassion. I was watching the, the documentary, Cave in the Snow, and in that documentary, you were speaking about the difficulty for women to get teachings in Tibetan Buddhism when you were a young nun. Um, I'm wondering what the landscape is like in present day, because I know in that documentary in the year 2000, you were speaking with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and uh, you said, you know, you received your bhikshuni ordination in Hong Kong in 1973, and this was now the year 2000, and uh, you were, it was still just being talked about. No, nothing had changed, really. So I'm wondering, it's 2022 now, uh, what has changed, what hasn't changed, where are we at? Well, some things have changed. I mean, nowadays there are many very uh, good nunneries, which are, this is for women, uh, nunneries which have been established. And definitely the big change is that nowadays the nuns study the same um, program, a philosophical program as monks. And they now do debating and ritual and uh, also advanced uh, meditation practices uh, on a par with the monks. This is a huge big change. I mean, really a quantum leap. And so now there are nuns in the Galukpa tradition who become Geshema, which is like a professor of philosophy. And uh, also in the other schools now, nuns are being recognized and given um, titles and they themselves are teaching other nuns and uh, themselves have now become uh, fully qualified. So this is a huge change. This is a huge change. And well done the monks for helping to train the nuns, you know, because who taught them and who trained them? It was the monks. Once they recognized that actually, you know, women are quite intelligent. Um, they started to teach them and discovered how, how rewarding that was because the nuns are so focused and so dedicated. And so that, that side of it has done very, very well. What hasn't done well is what you brought up, which is the higher ordination or bhikshuni ordination for nuns. They are still going round and round and round. There's a lot of opposition to that. However, um, in June, uh, we went to uh, Bhutan, which is a Himalayan uh, country, the only uh, independent Vajrayana country in the world now. And there, the, the head of the monastic uh, tradition, the, His Holiness the J. Kempo, was giving full ordination to 142 nuns. This is the first time in Tibetan tradition when this ordination has actually been given within the Tibetan uh, lineage of the Mula Savasavada. 
And so 142 nuns received this full ordination from His Holiness J. Campbell with the support of the royal family of Bhutan. Uh, the Queen Mother of Bhutan is the uh, patron of the Bhutanese nuns project. And uh, the king uh, had written a letter requesting the J. Campbell to give this ordination. And so it had the support of the, the royal family and the J. Campbell, who is an uh, absolutely impeccable monk and very learned. And so that was wonderful, fantastic. 140 nuns got ordained. But it has still been ignored by the Tibetan establishment. I mean, they just simply don't ignore it. And they say, well, that was Bhutan, that's not us. And so that is the last barrier for the nuns yet. To, at the moment, all nuns are just novice ordination. They don't have the full ordination. So that is uh, really the next challenge. I don't know how and when it will be overcome. There's a lot of resistance to that. But apart from that, the nuns are very well educated now. They're, they're well housed, they are well respected, and they have come up enormously in the last 20 or 30 years. So we are very happy for them. Well, that's good to hear. I, I just a follow up. I'm curious what the root is of the resistance, because I, I understand. Is it, is it true there's a teaching in Tibetan Buddhism or somewhere that it's not possible to attain enlightenment in a female body. Is that the root of the resistance or people, is that in people's mind or? Well, there, there is that teaching in, in Mahayana Buddhism. I mean, in certain texts they, they say, but then when you ask the Lamas, well, what specifically is it in the male body that's so important that without it, you know, we can't get enlightened. You know, they don't really quite know what to say. So, um, you know, and I have given up saying, well, you know, I aspire to Buddhahood in female body. I just say I aspire to become like Tara. And then they can't say anything. <laughs> Good. Um, but the, the main opposition to the, the full ordination is that at the time in the eighth century when Guru Padmasambhava and Acharya Shantarakshita and the King Trisandetsan, they, they invited monks from India to come to Tibet to establish the uh, monastic order in Tibet. They invited monks, but they didn't invite nuns. So therefore the argument is there is no female ordination lineage in Tibet. It got broken at that time. It was not established in Tibet and therefore it requires only a Buddha can re-establish it and so we have to wait for uh, Maitreya to come in 2,500 years or whenever uh, to uh, re-establish the female lineage. It's, it's a very complicated situation and uh, other people say they're actually in this Vinaya, in the monastic rule, says there is actually no difference. The essence of a monk's ordination is the same as a female ordination. And the Buddha said, in the absence of fully ordained nuns, I allow you, O monks, to ordain nuns. So actually, if they really wanted to do it, they could do it. But they, they don't really want it. I mean, and this is the problem. It needs very, very 
high lamas who everyone respects and the cooperation of the nuns to um, bring it about as they did in Bhutan. I mean, when they decided to do it, then it broke down just like that. You know, no argument, the king, the, the, the monastic board, the nuns, everybody came together and said, let's do it. And so it was done. But without that, then they just go around and around and around researching, arguing, and never getting anywhere. So it will happen, but it, it's been very interesting to watch the resistance. Um, the lack of, of real desire to uh, resolve the situation and come up with a solution. So anyway, it will happen. All these things take time. The nuns now are highly educated. The good thing is that 20 years ago, when this was first brought up 30 years ago, the nuns were uneducated. They were living in very poor situations. They had a very low, um, low self-esteem, no confidence. And if they had taken the higher ordination, I don't think they would have known how to deal with it. But now they're highly motivated, they're very educated, they're much more confident, they're teachers themselves. Now is a good time. Now they could easily, um, you know, uphold all the study, the monastic code and, and do all the rituals and themselves be exemplary examples of the monastic life. So now is a good time. We should remind the boys. <laughs> thank you um we've got a lot of of nice questions coming in from our audience is it okay with you if uh, if i read some of those off okay this one is from uh vida and it says in daily life how would you recommend incorporating meta for oneself i have been a practitioner for 13 years and I'm recognizing that I have focused on cultivating compassion for others, but not so much for myself. I'm now seeking, and I'm now seeing how my own lack of compassion for myself spills over in my interactions with others. Oh, excellent question. Excellent. Um, the Buddha himself, when he taught metta or loving kindness, and compassion and joy in the goodness rejoicing he said we start with ourselves and then from giving loving kindness compassion to ourselves then those that we love which is easy you know family members uh, our partner our dog whoever you know whatever being and then to those we're indifferent towards to those we find difficult that we don't like and then to all the world in general the, the idea behind it is that we recognize how nice it would be to feel okay, right? How nice it would be if we felt well within ourselves and free from suffering. And so the, the root of the word metta is, is a friend. So basically what we're doing is befriending ourselves. Instead of criticizing ourselves, putting ourselves down, ignoring our own needs, we, we give kindness to ourselves. We, we make friends with ourselves. We, we say things to ourselves which a good friend would say to us. 
and in other words we get at peace within ourselves then if we are genuinely friends with ourselves since we can't leave ourselves behind we have to take ourselves with us even on the spiritual path until you know that sense of ego dissolves in the meantime we've got an ego so that poor little ego it should be a happy little ego that's happy to walk the path right i mean an injured sense of self an unhappy sense of self will will not be able to walk the path skillfully and so the buddha said we start by making the mind calm and clear and at the same time we give affection to ourselves we forgive ourselves we make friends with ourselves we're at peace and then with that in our heart it's easy to give it to others so one thing which many teachers uh, asian teachers have found is that uh, westerners especially or maybe even modern day asians have a hard time liking themselves and outwardly they might seem very confident and you know promoting themselves like anything but inwardly they actually have very low self esteem they're very critical of themselves very unforgiving of themselves and that inner conflict extends into outer conflict so sometimes some teachers now say well start don't if you have hard time giving kindness to yourself start with something somebody who you can give loving kindness to you know a family member or your 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 partner or as i say your your pet it doesn't matter who what but just think how happy you would be if they were well and happy and free from suffering really wouldn't that be lovely if they just were happy and and that warmth that you feel in the heart then turn it back to yourself and say you know may you be well and happy tiknat han the great vietnamese master also recommends that you can see yourself as a child a small child because many people their their sense of low self esteem is based on on early upbringing which did, went wrong and so they have a lot of inner pain from from early childhood in which case to see yourself as a child and then give love to that child and heal the inner child so i mean the point is that this is not just some new new age kind of ideas this is something which was taught by the buddha himself to give make friends with ourselves and once we have made friends with ourselves very easy to make friends with others so please she should work on that you know really really holding herself and and recognize she's worthy of love just as everyone else is worthy of love we have to love all living beings all sentient beings we are the one sentient being we're especially responsible for so we have to start as the buddha said start with ourselves and then extend outwards thank you and and thank you vida for that question there's another one here from sabina but it's on behalf of a group so i'll read i'll read the question um you mentioned the importance to treat difficult interpersonal situations as learning opportunities we are interested in difficult intercultural situations we wrote an article on 
preparing to be offended by representatives of an organization called the Cultural Other. Our question is, how can Buddhist teachings help people prepare to be offended and to learn from such experiences instead of pulling back, feeling hurt? Well, I mean, one thing I think we have to remember is that when other people are, you know, racist or aggressive or in any way offensive, it's because they themselves have problems. If we were really at peace within ourselves, we would give peace to others. I mean, anybody who has this very aggressive uh, response to others um, and seeing them as something alien and therefore in some ways threatening, have problems themselves, you know? So then how sad would we want their mind? This is the thing to ask ourselves. Would we want a mind which responds to others in the way that they respond to others? And we would think, no, we would hate to have a mind like that. How sad that they are trapped in that kind of narrow, biased, racist, or offensive kind of mind. I mean, that is for them very painful. They don't realize it, but actually it's not a happy state of mind. And in addition, from a, at least from a, a spiritual point of view, they're making very bad karma. So in this lifetime, maybe they get away with it. But next lifetime, who knows where they're gonna, what situation they're gonna find themselves in as the, the you know, dark seeds which they have been sowing come up into harvest. So, you know, instead of feeling offended, we can feel great compassion because they're obviously very screwed up. And at the same time, we can take it as an opportunity to, you know, as I say, cultivate forbearance and tolerance, which is a very important spiritual path, quality which we do need and which we won't be able to cultivate if people, uh, you know, don't, don't do things which cause us offense. So at the same time, when these feelings of, feeling offended come up, we can recognize that and say, feeling offended, angry, hurt. And by, by looking at that feeling as it comes up and, and labeling it, we are able then to take control of that feeling and to transform it into a more positive feeling, recognizing that that feeling is a negative feeling and hurts us more than it hurts the other person and so that's not very helpful but first we have to recognize that we do feel i mean we can't pretend i don't feel offended or i don't feel angry i mean that that is just oppression so we allow the feeling to come up but we recognize it when it comes up we don't feed it sort of get swept away by it when it comes up we look at it we see it we can say this is anger, this is hurt, this is a sense of, you know, wanting revenge. But then seeing that that is a very negative response, which will not bring any good to ourselves or to others, we then have the opportunity to say, this is a time when I will transform that negative into something more positive. And this is how we advance on the path. And this is how we cultivate 
the qualities, back to the gym, working out hard on the machine, right? It might be painful at the time, but in the end, we end up with a lot of strength. So, you know, in that way, you could feel almost grateful for people who are being offensive because they're helping us to cultivate uh, our forbearance and tolerance and compassion. So, you know, it's not something, it doesn't, you know, like the, even if the ideas come into our mind, it doesn't mean that automatically habitual tendencies of many lifetimes are going to be transformed. But as the Buddha said, if you take an empty pot, drip by drip by drip, the, the pot is filled. You know, so moment to moment when we, we manage to be in control of our mind, it's swept away by our, our inclinations, then we gradually become the masters of our mind instead of the slaves of our mind. And, and in that way, again, we can feel grateful for those who brought up the challenge. It's a learning process, right? How to turn negative into positive and to be grateful for those who expose our negativities so that we can work on them and transform them. Thanks to Sabina and her group. There's a question here from Hoda. Hoda says, where is the fine line for bodhicitta? How can we stop it from becoming abuse? What if I am not grateful? Abuse is abuse. Well, I mean, of course, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you're in a very abusive situation, you just say, you know, hit me harder. This is a great spiritual progress. Um, we have to also have wisdom along with our compassion, right? And uh, somebody who is very abusive uh, themselves are creating a lot of negative karma for themselves, as well as causing harm for the person that they're abusing. So we don't need to let them get away with it. Compassion and bodhicitta, but compassion can also be quite wrathful. It's not always sweet and smiling. Um, for example, in, in Buddhism, uh, the bodhisattva of representing compassion is uh, Avalokiteshvara or Chenrezig, Kuan Yin. And uh, that is shown white and smiling and holding a lotus and looking very sweet and very peaceful, just how we would imagine compassion would be. But in the Tibetan tradition, the other flip side of uh, this white smiling Chenrezig is Mahakala, the great black one, who is the head of all the Dharma protectors and extremely wrathful. And that is also compassion. Just as a, a mother bringing up a child sometimes has to appear very wrathful to that child if they are going to do something which is very naughty and which could hurt them. They can appear very angry, but it's not because they hate the child. It's because they have compassion for that child and realize the child has to be stopped from doing something which would be harmful for the child. Right? So compassion sometimes can seem very tough, um, but the, the underlying motivation is not anger, hatred, or fear. 
the underlying motivation is wisdom and compassion. So in that way, one stops abuse, but not by being inwardly abusive, but because on account of one's great compassion, recognizing how this abuse will cause great harm to the abuser as well as the abused and has to be stopped. And if it cannot be stopped by peaceful means, then it has to be stopped by wrathful means. I mean, if someone's cheating you, you don't just let them get away with it because that harms them as much as yourself and will encourage them to cheat others in the future, which is not kind, right? And so therefore they need to be stopped. They need to be exposed. But the underlying motivation behind it should not be anger or desire for revenge, but out of um, a genuine compassion for the whole situation and trying to help them to prevent them from doing more wrongdoing. Does that make sense? Definitely, very much. Yes, thank you. And thank you, Hoda, for that question. I think we, we have time for one more audience question, if that's okay with you. From Yuichi, who says, what sort of practice or approach would you suggest to help loosen or weaken one's attachment to sex? Thank you. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I'm probably not the best person to answer this sort of question, you know. Um, the, the problem is always to that we are, the, the, the real question is the attachment. The Buddha said that this attachment, this grasping, this clinging to something is the cause of our suffering. And we believe that um, attachment is, is a, if we fulfill our attachments, that it will bring happiness. But in fact, it does not bring happiness. And it, it brings more, more, more pain. Like greed, greed, the Buddha said greed is like drinking salty water. The, the more we drink, the thirstier we become. We never can be satisfied. And likewise with our attachment to anything, to food, to drugs, to entertainment, to sex, to anything that we're attached to. It's the, the grasping mind which is going to cause the suffering. So I would say if you're really attached to sex and it really is a problem for you, then to take a vow to abstain from sex for a month and watch your mind, right? And, and just see what thoughts come up, what feelings come up. What do you think? Of I am <laughs> he's more likely to know about these things than I am. <laughs> and I did it. <laughs> it was helpful. It was helpful to do but important to watch the mind while you're doing yeah, to, to really watch the mind and see how that, that grasping and, and attachment is what's causing the pain. And that however much, I mean, you can have sex 24 hours a day and it wouldn't resolve the problem. That's the thing, that to recognize that moderation is, is the answer. Not, I mean, to take a, a vow of chastity for a month just to spot the reactions. But chastity in itself is not the answer. The answer is, is uh, moderation, not, not overindulgence and not underindulgence. And also to, 
you know, in in the Buddhist precepts, the, the third precepts is is uh, sexual misconduct, and that means not exploiting others for one's own satisfaction sexually, using other people merely as a means for my satisfaction, right? That that will never bring any good to anybody. And, and so we really need to respect others and respect ourselves and respect our sexuality, which is a very important drive and not to you misuse it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with sex in itself, but we can misuse it and also misuse the bodies of others. And this is, is not going to bring happiness either to the other or to ourselves. And so I think it's, it's good that they are looking at that as a, something which there has to be worked on, right? This is a good thing. Not to think that it's okay, because it's not okay. Any strong attachment is not okay. Whatever it is that we're attached to, we need to hold things gently and lightly and not, not have it dominate our, our mind and our bodies, because then we are just as slaves to our instincts instead of being the masters. And that's a very sad situation. So it's good if he really takes this in hand and says, okay, this is gonna be my practice. I'm really gonna look at this whole situation. Why am I so attached? What is it? Is my mind attached? Is my body attached? What is it which makes my sexual activity so compulsive? And, and really look into the whole situation. This is very good. And so that, that's the way to go, is to really engage the whole mind in, in looking uh, at uh, how to loosen this tightness and, and open it up and, and gain more respect for oneself and for others. Mm. I'm not suggesting he becomes a monk. <laughs> 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 thank you and thank you Yuichi for that question and a big thank you to Jacob Steele who's our podcast producer and events curator at Banyan for all the work that he does to bring in such wonderful guests and speakers like our honorable guest today before we say goodbye I'm wondering can I just ask I know you're in uh is it Lahora Lahore Lahore yes and in and you mentioned that there's the possible possibility that there will be a follow-up documentary to uh, Cave in the Snow. Um, I'm wondering, can you just tell us a little bit about that and, and any other notable projects that you would like people to know about? Yes, Hi, thank Felipe. you. Hi, Ross. Uh, thank you for bringing it up. Uh, yes, we're in the progress of working on that now. This is uh, basically a preliminary trip that we're doing with Jetsuma to get to know the place where she had spent 18 years of her life and is very close to Jetsuma's heart. So we figured we needed to come and see for ourselves and also scout the locations and the places that we're going to be filming for the documentary. We're still in pre-production stage, uh, going into production shortly, but uh, the idea is to portray all the events that have happened since, you know, um, a lot of people having read uh, the, the book by Vicky McKenzie and also the doc documentary that was done with uh, Kate in the Snow, 
um, don't have much idea of what's going on right now and all the things that Suma has done in all these uh, years. So now DGL, the nunnery is fully built, nuns are trained and so many good things have happened. So we want to definitely show that and give the people the opportunity to connect with uh, everything that has been going on for all this time and to know that, you know, there has been, uh, as Suma said before, there has been some progress. Lots of progress. And things are looking good. So why not share that goodness with everyone? So that's why we're doing this uh, documentary and this documentation really uh, for posterity of all the things that have happened. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Felipe. Jetsunma, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us and, and share your wisdom and, and compassion today. Thank you. Thank you, Russ. And good luck with Banyan Books. I really hope that people get into the habit of reading real books. I mean, this is a wonderful thing. And may you, your, your whole organization really flourish with the kind of books that you are printing and, and publicizing which will be enormous benefit for so many people. Wonderful, well done. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele, the show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross Makichi. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.